All right. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Jeff Ayers, and welcome to Beyond the Cover. My co-host, John Robb, is on assignment, and his Bundy can't be here with us today. And I am thrilled to have one of my favorite writers with me here today, Chuck Wendig, who is, he is the everyman. He's written in everything you could possibly imagine. And we're going to talk a bit about those things. But Chuck, first of all, thank you for being here today. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for, first of all, saying nice things. And then uh, also for having me. This is awesome. Well, let's talk about uh, Book of Accidents, which I've uh, Kermit's reading behind me here. Uh, it's being published on July 20th. Uh, what's going on with that one? Uh, you know, I, I wanted to write a haunted house book. Uh, I grew up, um, if you believe in this sort of thing, I grew up in a haunted house. And so I always wanted to tackle that sort of thing. But uh, I'm also a really greedy writer so I never want to stop where I start uh so it's like one of those things where I stick the knife in and I keep turning it and so as a family uh moves back home to their uh, they leave the city and move to uh the father's sort of uh, ancestral home as it were uh he is met there by uh the ghost of his own father uh who was an abuser and uh, as that's happening and he's grappling with the thought of whether he's losing his mind or whether this is something he's really seeing, um, his wife, uh, who is a sculptor, begins to have her artwork come alive. And the son meets a strange new friend who may have strange dark magics and who may not be a friend at all. Uh, there's a creepy coal mine and a missing serial killer and there's dark magic afoot. And uh, it was a lot of fun to just sort of keep people uh, guessing just as, you know, as I write it, keep myself guessing, too. Well, one of the characters I really liked, and I loved his intro, was Edmund Walker Reese. Oh, the serial killer. Yeah, yeah. man. Uh, talk a bit about him, because man, oh man. <laughs> he uh, oddly was not in the first draft of the book. Actually, the story actually has a weird, the, the book is a, has a weird story itself. Like I tried writing this book twice before. Once maybe about 20 years ago and once maybe about 10 years ago. And uh, it's odd because I remember the one I wrote 20 years ago, but I went back and looked at the one I wrote about 10 years ago and I couldn't remember a word of it. I didn't remember any of the characters. None of it was familiar. I felt like I was literally losing my mind. Uh, but in the first draft of this particular iteration, uh, he was just sort of a, a story. It was just part of the flavor uh, background of the book, sort of background noise. Um, and sort of like left a legacy and a scar sort of on the landscape and the psychic landscape of this place, but he wasn't actually a character. Uh, and so we read it and we were like, you know what this needs? This actually needs him front and center. And so uh, that, that's sort of where he came from. Wow. Okay. So you say you've tried this book twice before. So did the idea of the haunted house come first or did a character come first? Uh, the character of now Oliver was I think the first thing that really came out of it. Um, sort of a boy who could feel too much and could see too much and who um, was himself sort of haunted by both bullies and sort of a, by that sort of generational trauma and cycles of abuse that can happen uh, in some families. And so uh, he was always kind of the heart of the piece, but the, the first two books were very different. Uh, and there's always a coal mine. That's the other thing, there's always a coal mine. What? Did you, so I have to say, one of the things I love about this book also is when I think of haunted house tropes, you don't really go that route. How did you, as you were writing this version, keep away from those stereotypes and tropes? Uh, mostly by not 
thinking about them, if that makes any sense. I really tried to sort of, and I mean, I don't really get too close to the experiences that I had growing up, but I, I sort of relied on those types of things, real world type of stuff more than the um, very sort of specific narrative tropes that maybe people would rely on. Um, and also I always knew that I was going different directions with it than the just purely a haunted house story. So knowing that you're not gonna have to end there um, gives you a little more room to move, I think. Okay, that's just cool. Um, I wanna ask about your previous book, The Wanderers, mm-hmm. um, because that was sort of, um, I sort of had a feeling it was like a, an amalgam of uh, The Passage, Swan Song, The Stand. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, talk a bit about that one. Uh, I, you know, I had this idea, obviously in the book, um, a number of sleepwalkers uh, begin walking one by one toward an unknown destination uh, for unknown purpose. And as they do it, then a pandemic rises in the background and you wonder how those two things connected and then so on and so forth. So um, the sleepwalker idea, that sort of core mechanism was with me for God, four or five years before I ever wrote the book. Uh, and I, you know, I had that nagging notion, but like an idea isn't a book. Um, I think writers sort of come up thinking that ideas are everything, that ideas are the most important thing we have when really ideas are just, they're not gems, they're costume jewelry. And it's really everything. It's whatever you do with them. It's how you wear them that that matters. So, uh, for me, it was finding a story and finding something that I thought made sense. Cause I just kept going over who are these sleep bars and I never knew. Uh, and then, you know, in the rise to like 2015 with our intensely bizarre political situation and with uh, everything from post-antibiotic age to global warming to the rise of artificial intelligence, the rise of white supremacy, just felt like this perfect storm of my, my anxieties. Uh, and I am not one to shy away from putting anxieties in, in a book. And so all my anxieties at that particular moment formed this like anxiety Voltron and uh out of nowhere, then the story just made sense. I just knew pretty much like a weird crystal beam of light where this story was going. And I, um, people always ask me how I did all the research for the book. And I'm, I earlier said I was a greedy writer, but I'm also a very lazy writer that I, uh, I didn't do a lot of new research because it was stuff that I was already interested in. It was stuff that I was reading just as I go along because they're things that uh, either interest me or terrify me or compel me in some weird way. So uh, Wanderers grew out of all of that. Cool. Um, well, this was a question I was going to ask. So I'm going to ask this now because you brought this up. Um, you blend contemporary issues that we're all dealing with into your fiction really well. And um, for me, having you reflect our reality makes your books resonate better, in my opinion. Um, and I know some people might disagree with that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Could you talk a bit about uh, that? Yeah, I am. Um... Whether we're, I mean, there's certain things, you know, obviously if you use, because they were talking about this with Stephen King, he uses so many brand names and um, certain media properties and they feel like it dates the work. But I mean, I also think every work we write is a product of its time and of the writer at that time. And um, especially if you're writing a contemporary book, I don't see any reason to not lean into those type of things. And in terms of like political or sociological things going on, uh, uh, you know, if you go back and you read Swan Song, which is easily one of my favorite books um, of Great. all time, it is very yeah. much a product of its time. How could you not, you know, people would read a book today and be like, that's very political. But Swan Song is a very political book. I mean, the president lady starting a, you know, nuclear war and, you know, it's a very, very political book. Um, 
and topical for its time and a book that maybe plays different now because we are not uh, under the heel of, uh, of what we feel would be a nuclear proliferation situation. So not to say it couldn't happen, I guess, just it's not something we're being, uh, you know, harangued with at every given moment. So uh, I think it's good that books can be a product of their time. I think maybe some readers um, viewing that as a negative are uh, maybe more into the partisan battles uh, going on in the news than they might like to admit. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, books are, they come from where they are. And I don't feel like you can uh, extract it. I think if, if it didn't have that, it would feel toothless. Uh, I don't want to write this sort of toothless, like generic serial numbers filed off type of thing. I, I feel like it's something, if I am worried about these things or if I'm going to talk about these things, um, then the book is a, a vessel by which to do that. And I love that about your stuff. Um, so my co my co-host, when he's usually here, um, we have arguments. And one of the arguments we have is which is a better franchise, Star Trek or Star Wars. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> so I have to ask, how did you get the uh, Aftermath gig? And could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, the uh, getting the aftermath gig was weird. <laughs> it's, it's not. <laughs> no one should could tr should try to get the gig the way I got the gig. Uh, I got the gig by tweeting about wanting to write a Star Wars book. I knew that Disney had procured um, Lucasfilm and the license, and I knew they were going to make new movies. And we didn't know much about that at that point, but I tweeted as actually on September fourth uh, of the year prior. I was like, I would love to write a Star Wars novel. And unbeknownst to me, a number of people sort of behind the scenes saw that tweet and uh, moved it in, you know, in the direction it needed to go independently of each other. And uh, next thing I know, it was New York Comic Con and I was meeting the editor at Delray. And uh, she said, um, well, you know, I read I read your book. And I said, well, I guess then it was good meeting you. Thanks for the opportunity. I'll see you later. <laughs> and she's like, no, no, I read a different book. I was like, oh, good. Because I assume she read Blackbirds and she did not read Blackbirds. She read uh, Under the Imperial Sky, which is sort of a a little bit of a Star Warsy John Steinbecky type of book to begin with. So uh, they had me work up a pitch and um, they gave me the permutations uh, of what that pitch was. Uh, and it was pretty wide open. They kind of were like, you could do anything as long as it doesn't feature these characters and it, it's in these, this time frame. So uh, I wrote them the treatment. They said, well, how fast a writer are you? And I said, pretty fast. Like, I'm, you know, I worked in freelance. I feel like I can do a pretty good job. So they, Said, well, it's going to be like a three, you know, month deadline. I was like, ooh, that's tight, but I can, I can do that. Uh, and the book was supposed to come out November of the following year. And then uh, I built my writing shed very explicitly for the idea of like, I need to have concentrated writing time. So uh, literally like day one of writing, I get a phone call uh, from the editor at Del Rey. And they're like, good news. Your book that was releasing in November is now releasing in September. I was like, oh, okay, well, that's great. That's cool. She's like, oh, by the way, that means you have two fewer months to write the book. I was like, but I only had three to begin with. So I'm not a mathologist, but that is one month. I have one month to write the first draft of this book. And they're like, yeah, I'm sure it's fine. See you later. So uh, I had one month to bang out a first draft of that first book. I mean, we obviously had editing, but uh, yeah. the book then came out on September 4th, one year to the day uh, from my tweet. Oh, wow. And it, it hit number four on the New York Times bestselling list. I'm like, the, like I said, the fours was with, the force was, was with me on that one. <laughs> oh, that's phenomenal. Wow. Uh, one of the characters you created um, was played by Timothy Oliphant in The Mandalorian. Mm -hmm. 
Um, did they tell you that in advance or were you watching Mandalorian and went, what? Uh, no, they don't, they don't tell me anything. <laughs> I am, for, especially now, because I'm not doing anything for them. Uh, right, so they right. have no reason to keep me in any loop. Um, but uh, I did hear the rumblings uh, before he showed up um, that it was him. Uh, but ultimately I was surprised on day one as anyone else was. That's cool. Uh, did, I'm just curious, did he fulfill what you thought of when you created that character? He is literally who I thought of when I created that character. It was oh, always that's... Timothy Olyphant. It was always him. So yeah, absolutely. No, he was um, pretty much everything I wanted to see there. I mean, they kind of jiggered with his backstory a little bit, but it still kind of lines up a little bit with Aftermath or pretty well. So cool. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, my uh, co-host and I have arguments about franchises star wars or star trek um so i'm curious what your feeling is about the star wars franchise now um as a star trek fan i'm doubtful i'm ever going to see another film again because they keep announcing it and then they keep going away and I, I yeah they've got the streaming stuff on on paramount plus just like they have star wars shows on disney plus but what, what do you think's gonna happen with star wars or star yeah or, or or both I don't know. Um, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know. Boy, I'd love to see a new film, um, a new film series, even if they, whatever, it, literally anything would be great. <laughs> just exactly. literally anything. Yeah. Just would be, would be cool. Um, you know, and I'm the type who, like, as much as I think J.J. Abrams misunderstands some of it, I also think, like, there's still Star Trek movies and I would like to see them. So, uh, cool. Um, Star Wars, I don't know. I mean, I, I know they have some interesting creators lined up from uh, Taika, and I know, I mean, Ryan Johnson's thing is maybe supposed to be still happening. I don't know. Kevin Feige is supposed to be involved, and Patty Jenkins. So, uh, I am hopeful, but at the same time, I also feel like Star Wars, the one maybe issue it has is it really loves to just keep filling in its own minutiae of details where it's like, we're just, everything becomes sort of prequelized. They move forward a little bit and then everything is about, well, if we have a 30 year gap, we're going to fill that with, you know, 40 movies, TV shows, comic books, books. Um, and that's okay, but it, it's tricky narratively because you always know where it ends up. Um, so you really kind of have to do something interesting. I, I mean, my understanding is the High Republic stuff is pretty interesting, but I haven't I haven't seen it or, or, or read it. Um, I'm pretty out of the loop on uh, new Star Wars material right now. Uh, but hopefully they'll they'll continue forward and tell some cool stories. Yeah, um, I think the reason the Abrams took Star Trek to you know the alternate timeline, uh, besides the recast, was then they could wide open do stories. Right. not be locked into That's the hope, yeah. but then of course what do they do they bring back con like hell <laughs> immediately yeah it's like all right okay i get it yeah whatever um so many so many writers are comfortable in one environment but not others you are the amazing can do it all so how do you I mean, you've written for games, you write novels, you've written nonfiction, you write graphic novels, you've done screenplays, and you've done media tie-ins with the Star Wars. How do you how do you do it all? And how do you do it comfortably? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea how I do it. I, um, you know, th there's a, first of all, the simplest sort of thing for me is that storytelling like format is different, obviously. A comic and a screenplay and a novel, they're all very different formats. Um, but at the end of the day, the stories are not, story is a story. 
Um, they may kind of shape a little differently, but all the bones are the same. Like, you know, it's almost like if you look at a, a dolphin skeleton and a human skeleton, there's a surprising number of shared bones, even though we look nothing like dolphins. So if one is a dolphin and one is a human, I still do understand a little bit about how bones move together and how they work. And um, so, you know, once you kind of, it was part of, part of the purpose behind writing uh, damn fine story or not. Uh, yeah. Damn fine story. My, my book after kick ass writer was the goal was to sort of dig into those story beats and to try to see how it all works together and how those bones connect up and how the muscle and sinew of story play together, even across formats um, from mythology all the way to, you know, whatever individual episode of TV or comics you're reading. Um, obviously there's different breaks and how the pacing goes a little differently but still at the end of the day you're kind of having these rising and falling of tension and and characters in danger and peril and then lots of you know love and violence and all the good stuff you put in there horror and um so for me it was just sort of you uh, sort of applying that universal storytelling thing across the formats and then just learning the formats and and also i have a mortgage and they want me to pay that and so i'm happy to do whatever i have to do uh to pay that mortgage uh, so, okay, so writing is like a dolphin skeleton. Writing is like a dolphin. That, yes, you just put that on my in my gravestone and we're good. Uh, well, you mentioned your writing books. Do you have uh, any plans to do another one or update Kick-Ass Writer? Uh, there is a third one, I think, in the wings with Writer's Digest. I think it's called One Fantastic Freaking Story. I think is what we're calling it. Uh, and it's a little more about kind of what we're talking about, how you tell genre stories, how you use those sort of universal applications of stories and then how you tweak them to fit different types of story. Uh, well, along those lines, uh, beginning writers are always told, what's the genre you're writing? What's your brand? Right. What is the Chuck Wendig brand? Uh, I like to think that Chuck Wendig is the Chuck Wendig brand. <laughs> I mean, it sounds silly, but like, and I, I feel that's actually the best answer for most writers. I mean, like if you're, you know, Stephen King, right, can write uh, Eyes of the Dragon. He can write a mystery novel. He can write a horror novel. He, uh, uh, you know, Joe Lansdale can write horror, science fiction, Weird West. He can write anything, but it's still a Joe Lansdale book. Stephen King was still a Stephen King book. Um, you know, the best sort of authors that are crossing those, you know, those boundaries, those genres. Um, I mean, Margaret Atwood's books are not the same as each other, but they feel like a Margaret Atwood book. Um, and to me, that is always sort of a goal. Like, I, you know, and it was when I wrote a Star Wars book, it was like, well, I, I need this to feel like a Star Wars book, but I also want it to be my Star Wars book, not just like a copy pasted sort of, well, I just wanted to, you know, again, serial numbers filed off, feel like someone else wrote this. I really wanted it to feel like I wrote it. Um, and so you know, in much the same way that I think you can transcend genre a little bit and find these kind of universal things. I think as a, as an author, you kind of uh, are the only, like we, we focus very much as writers on original things, originality as a concept. And just like ideas, the idea of ideas, um, the idea of originality is not always that useful or fruitful to us, but um, the one original thing we have is us, the author, you, who you are as a person is, um, not to get to like, well, you're all a special snowflake. You're a precious little, nobody's like you. You're a fingerprint in the world. But uh, I mean, at the same time, there are there is, you are a weird, we're all like weird agglomerations of anxieties and ideas and experiences and all the things that's happened to us and all the people we've known. 
And um, we're always going to tell if we if we cleave to that, if we uh, really embrace that idea, uh, I feel like your voice and your your stories that you tell will always be your uh, quote unquote brand, uh, for lack of a better term. Oh, that, that's wonderful. Thank you. Well, I don't know if it's wonderful, but <laughs> well, I don't what I'm doing with. It's what I'm <laughs> doing. So. I, I like it. It's great. Um, one of the other arguments my co-host and I have is uh, standalones versus series. Mm. And you've obviously done both now. Um, what do you prefer writing? Standalones now, currently. Uh, uh, series are hard because by the time you're releasing that first book, you've written maybe the second book. And then maybe the publisher sells that first book well or supports it well. Maybe they don't. Maybe they support it well and it doesn't sell well. Or maybe they don't support it well and it doesn't sell well. And then by then you're like, well, if I'm writing a three book series and I'm now I'm like writing the third book, knowing full well that the second book isn't even out yet, they're not going to support it as well. And people probably won't read it because I mean, inevitably, most series have the whatever X number that your first book is. Second book has half the sales. Third book has half the sales of that. And obviously, as the first book sales grow, so too do the sales, ideally, of the following books. But they're almost never going to outsell the first book. So by the time you've signed a contract and you're like already ripped tearing to write this, the rest of that series, you may already be experiencing a series that's not doing as well as you'd like. And so it kind of takes a little of the stuffing out. And um, so for me, like doing what I did with Wanderers, which is packing a lot into it. I mean, it's a, it's a series unto itself as, as a big, very big book, but uh, we only decided to write a second book, a, a sequel more than a series book, um, if it was deserved, if I could think of a good story, if it sold well enough, if there were enough people who were like asking me about it, like, is there going to be another book? Then that's to me a good sign that it's time to write that book and not just have it be an automatic uh, thing you do because the series tends to help the publisher more than it helps the author I, I think personally okay well and I was going to say um, Wanderers has a thing saying you're going to be doing a sequel to it now yeah but we weren't initially yeah okay yeah oh so, oh, so that's cool all right yeah, it was always it was initially a standalone pure, <laughs> purely a standalone all right well this is good news okay um Curious about uh, TV film. Any of your stuff been uh, optioned or are we going to see anything on the screen anytime soon? Um, well, I mean, we, uh, there was a series of tweets that ended up as a sci-fi movie, but um, <laughs> on, on sci-fi channel, which is pretty weird. You might be the killer. Um, after that, I mean, most of my stuff is optioned in some way. Um, I think Invasive just left option, so it's back up for grabs. But the Miriam Black series is still has never been out of options, always had a series of people. It's not even, I don't even think it's announced who's working on it right now, but it's, it's being worked on. And uh, Wanderers was in the hands of um, Glenn Mazzara, a really truly uh, genius uh, person. And unfortunately he is uh, no longer involved in it because he, we, uh, turns out people don't want to watch a pandemic movie or a pandemic TV show right now. I don't know why. I can't imagine why they would, uh, uh, no, no, to be fair, you know, the book sales have actually been strong during the pandemic to my absolute shock. I thought, I thought we would hit a cliff and just like, well, now there's a real pandemic. So just push this book into a hole. Uh, but it did not, it maintained for um, the duration, but uh, TV studios are notably reticent about it. So 
Uh, he unfortunately has left, but it is still under option with uh, QC and Lionsgate. So, you know, we, uh, who knows? Uh, and we'll see. Well, good luck. I'd love I to see that. Never gonna happen. I always assume there's no chance. Like that's my guess. I just it's a very rare shot to have a thing actually made. Well, I, I was going to say the weird thing is once the pandemic started and I'm like, oh, I can actually read for fun now. Um, I have time. The very first book I picked up was Station Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> a very fun book. <laughs> yeah. Like, what a wacky what? romp that is. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so my last question to you, Chuck, is where can people find you on social media? Um, boy, but hey, I'm like everywhere, pretty much. I'm just, I'm just in your, in your internet. Uh, at Twitter, I'm at Chuck Wendig. Uh, at Instagram, I'm at Chuck underscore Wendig. Uh, my blog is terribleminds.com, and uh, all of those places are. Um, I don't have a TikTok. I can't do that yet. A lot of authors are like, time for author TikToks. I'm like, nope, nope. I'm too. I, I can't do it. I don't. I don't have any cool dances or any lectures to give. I feel like that's a bad idea. Well, we're going to work on that for you. No, we're <laughs> good. All right. Well, Chuck, uh, thank you again. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting yeah. with you. And um, folks, pick up Book of Accidents, uh, July 20th. Pre-order it now because it is terrific. Chuck, thanks again. Hey, thank you.